Chapter fourteen of From Bangkok to Bombay Siam, French Indochina, Burma, and Hindustan by Frank G. Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. The Viceroy and His Job. The gay season in Calcutta is drawing to a close. The Viceroy's annual visit to the city is almost over, and I should think he would be glad. From his arrival at Christmas, until his return six weeks later to delhi his time is filled with parties and state functions i understand that he averages three a day the social machinery of the viceregal court of india is far more elaborate than that at the white house and comparatively speaking the viceroy is a more exalted personage than our president only people of definite social standing are invited to the viceroy's yearly levy which is the occasion of all kinds of wire-pullings and i dare say hair-pullings too though only men attend once you have been presented to his excellency you are on the official list and may be considered to have arrived socially at the levees the guests are mostly europeans representatives of the important business interests large landowners higher government officials and such native princes or noblemen as happen to be in town the uniforms and costumes worn at the vice-regal functions are gorgeous i can think of no other social gathering in which the men outshine the women the latter are attired in the conventional evening gowns but the men make a high potentate of one of our secret orders in full regalia look almost drab the civil officials wear blue uniforms of various shades elaborately embroidered with gold thread and costing from one to two thousand dollars depending on the rank of the official and the amount of gold it demands the officers of the different british regiments stationed in india wear their dress uniforms many of which are of white richly trimmed in other colors and set off by gold epaulets gold lace is lavishly employed and there is a considerable use of fur which i should think would be rather uncomfortable in this hot climate add to the other apparel the cloth of gold turbans the jeweled swords the embroidered silks and the splendid jewelry worn by the native princes and you have a scene unequalled for brilliancy in any of the courts of europe the viceroy has more power than king george v by whom he is nominally appointed and he rules three-fourths as many people as there are in all europe he lives in as much splendor as any european monarch maintaining a large establishment and going about in state whenever he appears at an indoor function such as a reception or levy he is preceded by six of his personal aides clad in sky-blue uniforms embroidered with gold thread in processions he is driven in a splendid carriage and escorted by a troop of cavalry the soldiers ride magnificent horses and carry long lances which flash like silver in the strong sunlight ordinarily when the viceroy drives out it is in a rolls royce attended by servants in red liveries adorned with his initials and coronet in gold embroidery when one goes to the white house he may call at the executive offices send in his card and possibly see the president within a few moments all who wish to pay their respects to the viceroy of india must first announce themselves by writing their names in the visitor's book this is much like a hotel register there are spaces for your name your profession the date of your arrival 
and the time of your leaving calcutta it is kept in a book near one of the gates of the viceregal mansion and is accessible to all the list of names so subscribed is taken into his excellency from day to day and at his direction the aide-de-camp sends out notes of appointment to such persons as the viceroy is willing to see the invitations for the dinners balls receptions and other events given by the court are made up from this list scarcely less imposing than the state maintained by the viceroy is that of the governor of bengal who lives in the big palace at the north end of the maiden when i was first in india this was the home of the viceroy as it continued to be until nineteen twelve when the capital of the country was transferred from calcutta to delhi after that the governor of the province moved out of belvedere house and into government house and now when the viceroy comes to calcutta he stays at belvedere government house looks not unlike the white house save that it is more beautiful and twice as large it stands in six acres of grounds not far from the hooghly river with public buildings at the side and back the entrance is more imposing than that of the home of our president when i called there the other afternoon i passed through gates upheld by massive pillars connected by arches upon which crouched gigantic white stone lions on each side of the gates were dark-bearded indian soldiers in uniforms of bright red with blue turbans as big as half bushel measures they carried rifles and swords and presented arms as i rode through at the end of the drive were dusky sikhs in red and at the entrance i was met by servants dressed in the brightest of scarlet also wearing blue turbans they had ivory-handled dirks in their belts and looked both stately and fierce on each side of the front door were more soldiers with flags in their hands like those at the gates they were six-footers and their turbans made them seem taller they stood like statues looking neither to the right nor to the left entering the front door which opens out on a wide portico upheld by grecian columns i came into the audience or throne room this is an immense hall with another great room extending from it at the center the ceilings of both are i judge about twenty-five feet high and are supported by columns of imitation marble with gilded capitals the floor of the throne room is of dark polished stone that in the dining room where i lunched is of veined white marble the throne room is as imposing as the east room at the white house and it impresses me more than any audience chamber i have ever seen in the palaces of europe at one side of it is a raised dais where the governor and his wife stand at their receptions this dais is covered with a cloth of gold and upon it is the solid silver viceregal throne which will i dare say be moved either to belvedere or to delhi in this room also is the throne captured from tipu sultan the ruler of mysore who gave the british so much trouble at the close of the eighteenth century after luncheon i went with a member of his excellency's staff to look at other parts of the palace the building which cost about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars was copied after kettlestone hall in derbyshire above the throne hall is a ballroom with walls of brocade and tapestry and floors of teak wood so brightly polished that you can see yourself in them the whole building is magnificently furnished 
and is managed by an official with a huge retinue of servants to help him one reason why both the viceroy and the governor live in such style is in order to make an impression upon the natives who judge things a good deal by show i should think that governing india was about the biggest of all the big propositions that great britain has on her hands the country appalls me it is so huge so varied and withal so strange if you could lift it up and lay it upon north america with its westernmost tip at seattle the edge of burma would extend beyond the parallel of montreal the state of Kashmir would reach way up into saskatchewan and manitoba and the apex of the country would be down in southeastern texas the total area is in round numbers one million eight hundred thousand square miles or almost exactly half that of europe india is a land of contrasts and extremes it has great deserts and mighty rivers soils that have been cultivated since the dawn of history and wastes that the plough has never turned the summits of the himalayas on the north are covered with perpetual snows and the icy wastes about mount everest are colder than the frozen depths of the buddhist hell the plains below are lands of the tropics and some parts are as hot as the burning deserts of australia in northern india the temperature sometimes rises to one hundred twenty six degrees in the shade hindustan is at once the wettest and the driest land upon earth at multan in the punjab the annual rainfall totals four inches or less while karachi in sindh has about five inches in the year practically all of which comes down at the beginning of the summer rains in that region at the other extreme is cherapunji in bengal which is said to be the wettest place in the world here the average rainfall is four hundred and fifty-eight inches or more than ten times that of new york while an unusually wet season may mean ten or fifteen feet more than normal in the record year of eighteen sixty one nine hundred and five inches fell at cherapunji of which three hundred and sixty-six inches poured down in the month of july socially speaking india is a land of various races and religions numerous languages and striking differences anywhere from a hundred and thirty to two hundred distinct languages are spoken not to mention the dialects it is the saying of the country that its language changes every ten miles some put the number of races at forty-five though others say there are really but four or five ethnological groups only about six percent of the people can read and write and but half of one percent can use english effectively there are some two thousand castes each separated from the others by the insurmountable barriers of custom the people are also divided along religious lines in the total population of three hundred nineteen million there are in round numbers two hundred seventeen million hindus sixty nine million mohammedans eleven million five hundred thousand buddhist mostly in burma five million christians three million two hundred fifty thousand sikhs and ten million animists in the north of india near relatives may not marry in the south marriage of close kindred is encouraged in some parts the women move about freely in others they are secluded and restricted in some sections wheat is the staple food in others rice 
in still others the people live mostly on millets of various kinds at one end of the social scale are the land-holding and professional classes many of whom are educated and cultured at the other are primitive tribes such as the head-hunting nagas of assam and the leaf-clad savages of the southern hills who live on vermin and jungle products india is the home of one-fifth of the human race with a little more than half as much land it has three times as many people as the united states although the population has an average density of one hundred and seventy-five persons to the square mile as compared with our thirty-five it is distributed with great irregularity in the northwest the semi-arid state of jaisalmer has only five people to the square mile while baluchistan has even fewer on the other hand there are two small areas in the fertile valley of the ganges where the population is upwards of eighteen hundred to the square mile probably the highest density in the world for any region outside of cities the country has almost as many towns and villages as there are people in st louis and it has large cities the names of which we scarcely know greater calcutta including the suburbs and nearby towns is almost as big as philadelphia bombay is about as large as detroit and madras equals san francisco in size while we are likely to think of all india as uniformly under british rule the indian empire is divided into british india and the native states the former embraces one million ninety three thousand seventy four square miles or somewhat more than sixty per cent of the area of the indian empire and contains a little above seventy seven per cent of the population we have forty eight states in our union but there are nearly seven hundred of the native states in india they range in size from tiny hill states no bigger than a dakota farm to hyderabad which is as big as italy and has a population of thirteen millions theoretically the native rulers of these states are absolute despots within their own territories but the british control all foreign affairs and the relations between the states actually too the british exercise a restraining influence on the native rulers in their management of domestic matters for purposes of administration there are fifteen divisions in british india the nine most important are the provinces of bombay bengal the united provinces of agra and oud the punjab burma assam bihar and orissa the central provinces and berar and madras each of these has its own governor and local administration the supreme executive authority is vested in the viceroy or governor-general as a concession to the agitation for home rule india now has its own representative legislature which was formally opened for its first session on february ninth nineteen twenty one it consists of the governor-general and two chambers the council of state and the legislative assembly all except forty-one of the one hundred and forty-four members of the assembly are elected with certain restrictions the legislature has power to make laws for all persons in british india and for all british subjects within the native states the administration is divided among eleven government departments the present idea of the british appears to be gradually to put more and more power into the hands of the indians themselves 
so that finally their country may attain to dominion status like that of canada or new zealand for years one great bone of contention between british and indians has been the question of the civil servants of the government the indian civil service includes the collectors commissioners and higher local administrative officials in the provinces as well as the higher departmental officials who conduct the secretariats in the various departments of the government of india and of the provinces the members of this service really direct the civil and judicial administration of india and have well been called by lord george the steel frame of the indian government they are also sometimes called the uncrowned kings of the east the great majority of all the officials and government employees are indians but the higher positions are largely filled by britishers the indians complain that some of the best places are given to english-born and bred young men who come out without any understanding of india its peoples or its problems remain for a term of years and then go back home the british reply that there are only some fifteen hundred british administrators in india and that many of the higher positions are now open to indians they maintain that the trouble with the native official is that no matter how well educated and intellectual he may be he does not know how to take responsibility or act on his own initiative in an emergency and so the matter stands a source of much bad feeling since i have been in calcutta i have talked with some of the highest and most thoughtful of the british officials about the all-pervading unrest when i questioned one of these men on the changing conditions in india he replied yes india is changing the people are different now from what they were even five years ago and policies that the state has successfully used in the past are no longer adequate or suitable one of our great troubles is making our people at home understand the situation here when some official who left here twenty or thirty years ago says a certain policy worked well in his day and that it ought to work well now they are apt to consider that sufficient reason for adopting it they appear to think that a man who served india ten years ago is competent to suggest and advise as to today this is not the case we have a new india and a new people we have developed a class of educated natives who are thinking for themselves in the past our administration was practically autocratic today we are wisely adopting conciliatory methods we shall have to use more diplomacy in our dealings with the indians and give them a greater share in the administration the changes already brought about are the natural outgrowth of movements we ourselves started and i think they are changes for the better but what would be the result if you should leave india suppose british rule should entirely cease i don't think there is any possibility or at least any probability of the british withdrawing from india replied the official we are bound to hold our place here as a matter of national duty not only to ourselves but to the indians and to the rest of the world if we should leave the result would be chaos and some other power would have to rush in to stop the carnage that would ensue one cannot imagine the conditions that would obtain were we to let go he continued there would be wars of religion wars of caste and wars arising out of long-time personal grievances the nepalese would rush down upon the bengalese and massacre them the mohammedans and hindus 
would leap at each other's throats and the native rajahs of certain localities would wage war upon one another the result would be anarchy and the tearing down of both the political and economic structure of the country another man well informed on indian affairs has told me that when he was making a trip through nepal his native escorts were constantly sharpening their long knives when he asked why they replied we hear the british are going to leave india and we are sharpening our knives because when they do we are going down to rip up the stomachs of those cowardly bengalis do you think that the new policy you have instituted giving the natives a larger representation in the government will work i asked my british friend most certainly yes was his answer the principle of selection adopted for the assemblies both national and provincial means that we shall have about the best of the natives in the councils the bulk of the indian representatives are and always will be men of reputation and influence among their own people and men whose property interests will naturally make them conservative these men want peace and good government and they will i think be the last to advocate anything that would bring about a violent revolution there are many indians of ability many patriots anxious to do all they can for their country and people the number of offices in the hands of the natives increases from year to year until now comparatively few british subjects are employed by the government all the small places are held by the natives as well as many of those carrying fairly good salaries others however are not quite so optimistic as this official and the unrest in india is causing grave concern both here and in england but i shall write more of this later on end of chapter fourteen